Amen. Thank you, choir and praise team, for that reminder that we come just as we are. I was talking with Eddie about Celebrate Recovery and how we encourage everyone at Celebrate Recovery to, ironically, in this day and age, to drop the mask. <laughs> to drop the mask. To, to quit hiding behind who we pretend to be. And so often churches are those places where people feel the need to have it all together, to, to pretend like they have everything nice and neat and their life is perfect. And we of all people should be willing to be vulnerable and honest and open with one another to say, I'm a mess, <laughs> to say, I'm worried, to say, I'm stressed, to say, I'm anxious, I'm lonely, whatever it is that you're feeling, you come today just as you are. We bring all of our hurts, our habits, and our hangups into this space today, knowing that when we cast our cares on the Lord, He cares for us, and that He meets us with open arms, just as we are. But the good news is that He doesn't leave us just as we are either, does He? His grace enters into our very depths of our souls and transforms us and makes us new from the inside out. And that's what we're going to see today in the Feast of Forgiveness that's spread before us at the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. It's a new month, October. I can't believe how fast September, I think those 30-day months, you know, just seem so much shorter without that extra 31st day. But here we are, October 3rd, so we have a new series. We're going to talk about flourishing. I didn't realize Andy found that I had done a series called Flourishing. I'm sure you all remember it about a year and a half ago or so. And so he had to do a whole new graphic for it. But I love this one. It shows the, the tree bearing this good fruit and the root system that is drawing those good nutrients up into it. What we're going to be talking about during this month is how uh, everyone has their own idea of what the good life is. Everyone has some kind of idea in their head of what the good life is. But what we're going to see in this last section of Isaiah is God's vision for the good life. What God tells us is the best life, and what God says is best is, in fact, best. We want to flourish according to God's way, because we believe that God's way is best. We're going to see God's design for our flourishing as well as the flourishing of all nations, of all people, and even all creation itself. You know, I love that Pixar movie. My kids don't love it. They, it's, there's not a lot of dialogue in it, but uh, WALL-E. I think I mentioned it before, but it's so good. Justin, you love WALL-E. I know you do. Yeah, so good. Uh, again, there's not a lot of talking, but it's the story of basically how humans have ruined the planet by consuming everything in it and, and just wreck the place. They produce so much garbage and use every natural resource to the point that the planet becomes uninhabitable. But not to worry because technology has made it possible for them to live on these intergalactic cruise ships in outer space with this kind of self-regenerating fast food of some kind. And they they continue to overindulge in, in food and, and mindless entertainment to distract them, uh, amusement, again, with, without thinking about it. And everyone just kind of sits around on these personal, floating, like lazy boy recliners, kind of electric chairs that they just stay in all the time on this cruise ship and, and until they can go back to life on Earth. 
but the computer system that runs these ships doesn't want them to go back to life on Earth, and that the hero of the movie are really these two little robots who discover a plant that's growing on Earth, and that means the Earth is inhabitable once again. And they bring this evidence to the ship's captain, and the captain says, it's time to go home, guys. We're going to go home back to Earth and, and plant seeds and work the land and, and have families and build cities and thrive. And then the robot uh, that runs the ship, the computer system, says, no, you can't go back. We're not going to let you. He says, it's time to go back. We're going back. And the, the system says, no, here on the cruise ship, you will survive. Remember what the captain says? He says, I don't want to survive. I want to live. Are you just existing today? Are you just surviving? I know there's been days where I felt like I just need to make it through the day. That's a miserable way to live, isn't it? The question before us today and this whole month, really, is do you want to just make it through each day? Is that your goal? Or do you really want to flourish as God would have you to flourish? As only God can make you flourish. That's really the question we need to settle in our minds because God's going to show us his game plan for flourishing. Do you really want to quit feeling like you're just trying to get through the day and instead live with true purpose and joy and meaning? Or are you content with just trying to survive? So many people in our world are confused. You know, they have their values all out of whack. I've said it before, they tend to worship their work, to work at their play, and to play at their worship. This, of course, leaves people feeling frustrated. It leaves them feeling out of, out of touch, out of whack. They resemble, you know, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones when they sang, I can't get no satisfaction. They're deeply unsatisfied. This morning, we're going to see God's gracious answer to people like this, to people who have become empty and miserable. He invites them to the table to be filled. <clears throat> so if you have your outline there in front of you today, you can follow along with us while we walk through Isaiah 54, chapter 54 and chapter 55, a sermon that I'm calling Satisfied by Grace. God's grace, his un merited, undeserved, unearned favor on us is the only thing that can satisfy our deepest longings and lead us to truly flourish. So first in chapter 54, we're going to see three pictures of this grace, three metaphors for God's gracious gift of love that he pours out for us. So let's jump into the first one in verses one to three. Hear now the word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who's married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. What's the first picture of God's grace here? It's that he adds to our family. God's adding to our family. Anybody here grew up in a big family? Anybody, I know some of you have several brothers and sisters you know, I have a friend who's a pastor of a church here in town, and it's like, 
the thing to do. You can't be like a real member of his church until you like drive a 15 passenger van with like seven or eight kids piling out of those double doors every Sunday. Uh, I know a few families like that and they're great. They always seem to have so much fun, right? There's like built-in uh, playmates, you know, already there. And I think my wife would probably, Isaiah's sick today, so she's home, but she would probably just have, you know, 10 or 15 if we <laughs> could just keep it going. Uh, I love big families, and, and I, here God is saying to Israel, I'm going to give you a big family. He's saying to his children, I'm going to expand the, the, the fun and the joy of a big family in your own life. Remember, God's people throughout this middle section of Isaiah had been feeling neglected. They had accused God of being asleep, of not paying attention. They were like, where, where were you, God? You let us get taken into captivity, into Babylon, this strange and pagan land as slaves. And, and they had become barren. Jerusalem was empty. Jerusalem was desolate. It had become emptied of its joy, emptied of its people. You know, we don't talk enough, I don't think, in churches again, where we take the mask off and talk openly and, and honestly about the hardship of couples who have either experienced infertility issues or miscarriages or most often both. I understand that people, you know, want to be private and I respect that and I think that's important. But as a church family, we weep with those who weep. And let me tell you from experience that when you lose a pregnancy or when you can't get pregnant, that there is much weeping involved. I pray that we can be the kind of vulnerable and sensitive and caring people where there's no stigma or shame involved in disclosing a miscarriage or, or, or struggles with infertility, that we as a church family could wrap our arms around these couples who are really walking through a very difficult time. I also think the church has generally done a disservice to single people, I, I have a whole sermon on that one, but there tends to be a stigma too around those who have no spouse, who have no children, especially for women. This should not be so. The Bible's clear that, that God says it's better to be single. You can get more done for the kingdom. And yet we've flipped that so often in church culture. We should honor our singles. We should include them in uh, those of us who are married with children, should include the singles in our family, should invite them in to our physical families and spiritual family because they need to belong. They need to be included and we need them in our lives as well because they are indeed part of our family of faith. Let's live that out. That was a side sermon, that was free. Clearly the Lord understands the shame he understands the pain of, of desolate barrenness, the loneliness that can come from these kinds of issues. And graciously, he reassures his people that he will provide for them a family. Not with children necessarily in the literal sense, but by multiplying their family of faith into all the world. God's people will possess the nations, it says here not through military conquest, but through the power of the Holy Spirit and the unstoppable force that would become known as the church, the body of Christ, the story of Acts is all about. How God's people just, you know, against all odds, this ragtag group of disciples spawns this massive worldwide movement that now numbers over two billion people. 
just in the current day. They're going to possess the nations in this beautiful promise of a big family. He's, he's saying to Israel, you're going to have to build a bigger tent to fit everybody in it. I love that. That leads us to our second picture of grace. Look at verses 4 to 10. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded or afraid in Hebrew, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. You know, wives in these days would, would be multiple, uh, a lot of times, marriages, and when the young wife would grow older, the husband would take a new, younger wife. For a brief moment, I deserted you. Yes, God allowed them in his judgment and love and mercy to be taken into Babylon. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. It was out of love that he did this. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I've sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. What's the picture here of grace? It's that of a tender, faithful husband. That's point number two. The second picture, this, this tender, faithful husband who's so uh, gentle and gracious to his wife. The Lord doesn't pretend, however, that we're innocent. Verse four says uh, about the, the shame of our youth, our youthful actions that have brought shame on us. You know, youth, you should never ask a teenager, why did you do that? because the, the, the frontal uh, cerebral cortex isn't fully formed until you're 25. So they literally weren't thinking, okay? Uh, that's the part of the brain that controls decision-making and, and logic. And so I did a lot of stuff that it, when I was a teenager that wasn't logical, and so did you probably. I've talked to many friends about my age that are so grateful, me too, that we didn't have social media or smartphone cameras to record all the dumb stuff that we did as teenagers. The shame of our youth, the Lord says, is not going to be remembered. God says here he's ready to wipe the slate clean. There's nothing to be ashamed of anymore. There's no condemnation. There's no consequence to fear. So many people still tend to think of God as like this big, mean judge who's just waiting to, to dole out punishment, who's just waiting to, to crack the whip on us. That's not the picture that we see here at all, is it? We see that a God who's gentle, who sees people in their loneliness, in their feeling of being cast off, and he proactively 
seeks out and gathers to him his beloved people in this gentle, compassionate, great compassion, he says, great feeling of love for them as he gathers us to himself. And the word for steadfast love is one of my favorite words in the Bible. In verse 10, it's the word hesed in Hebrew. And it means the kind of love that's like a bulldog that just bites on and won't let go. It's this kind of determined, dogged love that no matter what we do, will never let us go. God's not finicky like us. He, his affections don't rise and fall. They don't waver or change. His love for us never ebbs and flows. That's worth breaking into song about. You know, I love that I have friends that are in the Presbyterian church and they joke about being the frozen chosen, you know, that they just kind of sit there like this and worship. But we should be people of great joy who aren't afraid to laugh, to sing out, to burst into song, and to love hard. And I hope that we don't ever become this, you know, rigid, frozen chosen kind of people, but that we are able to break into song. This leads us to the third picture of grace here. Look at verses 11 to 17. Oh, afflicted one. You hear the compassion in God's voice. Storm-tossed and not comforted. Behold, I will set your stones in antimony. I had to look up antimony. Do you know what that is? It's like this metallic substance that's found in the ground. And lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, the best teacher ever. And great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Think about that at 9-11. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I've created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord." What's this third picture of grace? It's a beautiful and safe city. A beautiful and safe city that God builds us into. I love living in Nashville. Man, most of my friends in ministry don't get to pastor in the town that they grew up in, but I get the joy of living in this amazing city. I was talking to a couple from Kentucky here today about just the talent that exists in this city, the musical ability, but also the intellectual capital. Uh, Nashville is truly an it city. It's changed a lot since I was a kid, but I still love it. I remember uh, in 2019 when the NFL draft happened here. Anybody go down there? There were 600,000, a lot of y'all, 600,000 people apparently lining Broadway and ESPN commentators just kept saying over and over again, Nashville really knows how to host a party. What a great city. How much fun is Nashville? We also made headlines in the New York Times for the transportainment vehicles, but that's another story. <laughs> There's never been a city though that had the kind of education system that had the kind of safety system, that had the kind of beautiful architecture 
of the city that God describes here. It's the greatest city of all time. It's where we're heading. It's where we're going to dwell with the Lord forever in this new Jerusalem. God comforts his people by describing how he will make them into this beautiful and safe city. In verse 11, he says, you know, this antimony he's going to provide for them. It's this like shiny uh, metal that was found in the ground and they would uh, grind it up into a powder and they would use it um, to put around their eyes. The women would, would put this kind of shiny stuff around their eyes to make their eyes beautiful. And you think about the eyes of these people who have uh, been taken into slavery in Babylon that had been formerly just rimmed with tears, bags under their eyes, swollen from, from years of mourning and crying and loss are now going to be made beautiful and sparkling and shiny once again. The foundation of the city is going to be set with sapphires, precious stones everywhere. The walls, from head to toe, this city is going to be made precious, valuable, and beautiful. And not only is it impressive and beautiful, it's safe. No weapon formed against it shall stand. And, and verse 17 goes further than that. People who raise up disputes against the city. I think about lawsuits and the litigious society that we live in now. No lawsuit can be brought against this city. Nobody can argue with, with her ways. Nobody can argue with her government because it's going to be so holy and effective. And we're going to win every argument. <laughs> I love winning arguments. <laughs> this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, verse 17 says. And as Ray Ortland says in his commentary, we will enjoy it all the more for not deserving it. It wasn't that we did it. It wasn't that we earned it. It's that God built us into it out of his grace. That leads us to a decision. We've seen these beautiful pictures, these beautiful promises of God's grace offered to us. Now will we make them ours? Will we live into them or not? Do we believe them? In chapter 55, we have two gracious invitations that await our reply. I always think that Morgan's going to reply to, a, you know, an Evite or something that is involving our whole family. And uh, often she thinks I'm going to reply to it. And then no one's replied. You know, ever have that situation? Here we have a, a really important invitation that we need to respond to today. Look at the first invitation do you want to keep spinning your wheels here? Do you want to keep just trying to make the best out of this worldly life? Or are you ready to accept the invitation to flourish and to be satisfied as only God can do? Look at the first invitation in chapter 55, verses 1 to 5. Come, everyone. Does this say come successful people? Come smart people? Come intellectual people? Come accomplished people? No, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Anybody's stomach starting to grail? Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, 
my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know you shall run to, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. The first invitation is to come and feast. Come and feast. You know, I, I didn't really enjoy food, honestly, until I married Morgan. Morgan taught me to really appreciate the good gift of, of good food. I used to just, you know, in college, in the seminary, whatever was the cheapest way to get calories in my body is what I did. But once we got married, Morgan taught me to really appreciate uh, how good food is. The problem is that a meal at the catbird seat, I'm sure you've been there, Jamie. A meal there, Jamie knows all the good places to eat. It's very expensive. This good food is so, you know, we can't just go eat at these places every week like I'd like to. But here, the, the invitation is to come without money. And even a night out, Morgan and I went out for my 40th birthday, and we, went to, we spent the most we've ever spent on a meal. It's the Steve Newton rule, right? Steve Newton, he won't spend money on anything, but he'll spend money on food and travel. I love that rule. I think that's what, the, it's close to what Isaiah is saying here. Spend money on food. Why do you spend money on things that's not good food? But it is expensive for our budget. But, but here's the thing. It, the morning after that meal, my birthday dinner, 40th birthday meal, I was still hungry. I was still hungry. The most expensive meal in the city is still going to leave you hungry in the morning. So what is it that truly satisfies? What we long for can't be bought with money. It can't be earned. We labor, though. We exhaust ourselves for things that don't ultimately satisfy. But the Lord offers us freely the gift of his grace which will satisfy us and delight us, it says, as rich food. Again, God's not some miserable police officer or judge waiting to punish us. He's like a great chef, a great chef who prepares this beautiful banquet, this feast for us, who puts this spread before us, and he can't wait for us to try everything that he's worked so hard to prepare for us. He knows that when we take one bite, we're going to light up from the inside and say, wow, I didn't know food could be like this. And the point is not the food. The point is him. The point is to come to him. Verse 3 says, come to me, know me, be in right relationship with me. You know, one of Morgan and my favorite uh, restaurant in town is, is Margot Cafe. It's not a paid endorsement. If she wants to send me some gift cards, that's fine. But uh, in little brick, uh, how, it used to be a, a firehouse, I think, uh, over at Five Points in East Nashville. It's a beautiful little spot. And, and Margot McCormick has been doing like farm to table, good food since before it was cool in Nashville. She's been doing it for like 30 years or something when East Nashville wasn't even cool uh, 30 years ago. And the cool thing about Margot is you can enjoy this amazing food and see her. Margot is in the kitchen literally just cooking up a storm and she's laughing. She's training her employees on how to cook. The menu changes based on whatever she buys that morning at the farmer's market. I just love the personal connection because every now and then Margot will step out of the kitchen and she'll walk into the dining room and I you know, got my face stuffed full of some kind of delicious thing that she made. And I'm like, oh, Margot, this, 
you really knocked it out of the park. And she just lights up. And I have that personal connection with her. That's what God's getting at here. The point is the chef, not the food. In verse three, God says, look, after you've experienced the delight of truly satisfying yourself with my grace, then listen to me. Then come to me and be part of the eternal covenant that I make with my children that allows them to flourish. The Lord longs to adopt us and make us, in the words of CR, part of his forever family. Being a part of that family changes us. Again, God's grace doesn't leave us as we are. That grace leads us to the final invitation in verses 6 through 13. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. The second invitation that we see here in, in verses 6 to 13 is to turn and be transformed. To turn and be transformed. That's the last point on your outline. Yes, God says, come as you are. Come without money, come with nothing to offer. He's the most gracious host. The invitation is for everyone, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are. Verse seven says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. You gotta quit your old futile way of thinking. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. When God invites us to return, that's the language of repentance. Repentance is a beautiful act of stopping our insane, destructive path that we are dead set on going on and finally admitting that we're lost and we need directions. Any, any men ever been there before? <laughs> okay, I don't know where I'm going. And turn around and go back to the life-giving Lord who waits with open arms to receive us. Repentance is a necessary daily act for all of us. During all the election campaign mess, uh, political divisiveness of 2020, uh, I saw a great article from a religion professor at Belmont that said, make repentance great again. <laughs> and yes, he called out both sides, by the way. It was a nonpartisan article. Make repentance great again. 
Repentance, you can't get elected as a repentant person, apparently. But we as Christians should model repentance daily. We need to be constantly turning from our insanity and, and going to gospel sanity, remembering the truth of God's word. The basis for our repentance is God's own character. He says, if you turn to me, I will have compassion. I will abundantly pardon. He's not going to hurt us or punish us. He's going to pardon. And he knows what he's doing. We can trust him. He doesn't think small like we do. His thoughts, his ways are infinitely above our thoughts and our ways. So when we go to him, we know that he knows best. God's word goes forth and brings life up from the dead ground. God's word makes us flourish as nothing else can. It's effective. It's powerful. And I love how the whole section ends in, in verses 12 and 13. This is the, the end of the major section of 16 chapters in Isaiah. All creation, not just God's people, but all creation, burst into song. The, the mountains burst into singing. The trees clap their branches together. A renewed creation is going to be enjoyed by God and his people together. Isaiah's been showing us how all this mess in this world is going somewhere. And that somewhere is a feast. A banqueting table at the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church. I love how Peter Kreeft, he's a philosophy professor, he's in his 80s now, still teaching at Boston College, he, he puts it this way in his book on heaven. Uh, it's called Heaven, the Heart's Deepest Longing. He says, now suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw with indubitable certainty that despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have for free, for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire. Heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing? What can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny less a scratch on a penny. Come and feast today. Come and be satisfied as only God can satisfy today at the table of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word because when your word goes forth, it's powerful, it's effective, it accomplishes that for which you purposed it for that reason that you sent it out to transform, to make things new, to make things right and good and whole again. God, as we approach the banqueting table today to partake together in the feast of forgiveness, remind us of your goodness. Help us to come and taste and see that you are good. Not just good, but you're the best. You're better, infinitely better higher infinitely than heaven is above the earth than anything else that we could run after in this life. God, we thank you for the preview of heaven that we have on earth, for, for the way you've added to our family, our family of faith, for the way that you've 
given us this compassionate love as a tender husband gives to his wife who has sinned and yet he doesn't hold it against her. As a beautiful city, an amazing city with the best beautiful architecture, the best systems for education and for safety and security, a, a totally flourishing it city that will make Nashville look like a terrible, pathetic little town. God, we thank you that these invitations you've given us to come and feast and to turn and be transformed as we repent of our sins, as we feast on what you give us, as we let your word accomplish in us that which you sent it to accomplish in us. Lord, we pray that in this time of communion, that we would commune with you and that we would be able to see the feast that you offer us is by far the best thing that we could come to and eat in this world. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have a time of reflection. Uh, Aaron's going to lead us in a song that, that, that tells us where we're going as God's people. But first, I, I want us to do something. I want us to, to, to stand together. Would you stand now? What is it that allows us to come to the table today? What is it that allows us to come and feast at the table of the Lord? It's our common beliefs in God the Father, God the, Holy, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So I want us together to confess, to say together, to acknowledge our faith in the Lord by saying the Apostles' Creed together once again. And the word Catholic, we know, just means universal. It means the church around the world that we are a part of as God's people. The church that confesses the Trinity. The church that confesses the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The, the church that confesses the communion, not only with God, but the communion of the saints that we have with one another through the fellowship of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you to say this together boldly as we confirm our beliefs before we reflect on our own sinfulness. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now that we've confessed our faith, our common shared faith, the historic Christian faith, the Bible says that before we partake in the feast of forgiveness, that we should examine ourselves. And we, we should examine ourselves not in view of our current circumstances, but in the long run. This is all going somewhere. Aaron's going to sing that we're going to feast in the house of Zion, the new city, the new Jerusalem, together. As you examine yourself, I want you to just pray during this time. Ask the Lord to search your heart, to know your mind, to know your thoughts, and, and see if there be any wicked way in you that you need to confess today and get right with him before we feast on these elements. Will you pray in your own 
heart right now to the Lord as Aaron leads us in song.